Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have chosen to join us today for worship, whether it be here in the house at 505 Community Drive or somewhere out in the interwebs, out in the the world at large. We are so glad to have you with us, and we pray that God does speak to you and, and moves in your heart that you might follow him more faithfully as a result of what we have done here today. Uh, We do have one more announcement we want to draw your attention to. Um, We have a preschool. If you didn't know that, we do. It's called Noah's Ark. And uh, there's a three-day option and a two-day option. And we are in need of some more substitutes. So if you are interested in subbing periodically to help us out uh, in the preschool department, if you could contact the office, we'll get you information on that. Uh, But periodically, we have people that are, are out, especially as we go into this Uh, flu, cold, and whatever else is going around in the world right now season. And so if you could contact the church office, let us know that you're interested. We can get you the information on that and get you onto the rotation. That would help us greatly. As we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, as we have just sung, I thank you for your great faithfulness, your mercy, and your love. Lord, I pray that as we meet together today, Lord, that you would speak to us in clear ways, the ways that we need to hear from you. Lord, there are so many voices clamoring for our attention in the world, and Lord, you need to be the voice that we listen to first and foremost. So God, I pray that this morning you would help us to hear from you. God, speak to us in this time, and help us to respond accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kurt, can you bring me down just a shade there, please? Thank you. How many of y'all have heard of the story of Chicken? Chicken Little, excuse me. Or what is it, uh, Chicken Licking or whatever. There's like 38 different varieties of that out there. The, 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 the story is of the little chicken that's walking around, and, and it's a cowardly chicken, a chicken that, that is just afraid of everything, afraid of its own shadow. And as as Chicken Licking is walking around one day, he happens to be underneath a tree, and as he's standing underneath the tree, something hits him on the head or her on the head, and the chicken is convinced that the sky is falling, right? Goes from there and tells everybody in, in the various versions that they need to prepare because the end is near. The end of the world is upon them, which, which that makes sense, right? That tracks. If the literal sky is falling, then the world is certainly going to collapse in on itself. The sky is falling. And so Chicken Lickin runs around the barnyard telling everybody what's going on and eventually goes back to the, 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 the tree and learns that lo and behold, there underneath the tree are apples. And that it, exa- it actually was not the sky that it was falling, It was just the apples that were in season that happened to be falling off of the tree. In the story, the chicken sees the signs, right? The signs of the time were upon her. The sky had literally fallen and cracked her in the head. Thus, the end was near. The sign, there was in fact a sign there, correct? There was a sign to be seen, experienced, and understood, But the way that the chicken interpreted the sign was not correct. Therefore, the concern was unwarranted. I find that story comes to my mind 
More often than not, early and often that sign comes to my mind because I think that we in the church happen to have a, a tendency to lean into the, 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 the chicken syndrome, right? The sky is falling. Ever since Jesus was on the earth and ascended to heaven, we have been watching and waiting for the end. And in fairness, part of the reason that we are anticipating the end is because Christ himself said the end of the age is in fact coming. So we continue to look around us at the quote unquote signs of the times. And we see things happening around us and we allow that to lead us to believe that the sky is falling. The end is upon us. I gotta tell you, we're not very good at anticipating this. We, we aren't. In my church growing up, we always talked about this. We've been fascinated with Revelation and I'm all about studying the Bible. We wanna, we wanna dissect it, we wanna look at it, we wanna, we wanna categorize it so that we can anticipate when is Christ coming so we can, we can somehow tighten down a date so that we can be ready at the exact right time. And I understand where that comes from. But for years of my childhood, I was terrified that the end of the world was upon us because well-intentioned pastors would set up, stand up in front of us and say, it was going to happen. I, th- I think I've told you before, every Christmas of my childhood, the pastor that was at the pastor and two different pastors, they would stand up in the stage and they would say, well, look at the signs of the times. Look at all that's happening in the Middle East. I am convinced that we will, we will not celebrate another Christmas on this earth. We, by next Christmas, we'll celebrate in heaven. I'm sorry, but y'all were wrong. I mean, it's some 33 years later and I'm still standing. We read the signs of the times, but perhaps we're looking at them in the wrong way. So I want for the next two weeks, I want for us to do a little, a little exploration of the words of Jesus himself. We're going to look at what Jesus said that, that we often take and we apply to Revelation, and I think that that's rightly so. But I want to start with the words of Jesus and see what he said about the signs of the times and how we should then interpret them and respond to them. And the question that we're going to be asking over the next couple of weeks is, is this the end? Is the end upon us? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to read to verse 35. Matthew 24, starting in verse 1. It says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to all of the buildings. Do you see these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. 
you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In those days, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. All that time, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you that there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes down from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The sky is falling. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus says a lot here. There's a lot going on here with Jesus as he starts at the temple, the temple mount with his disciples, and, and they ask a pretty interesting or a pretty innocent question, don't they? I mean, it's like a question we might ask if we were in somewhere like, say, Washington, D.C. Hey, did you see that building over there? Isn't that an amazing construction? Can you believe that humanity can do that? That that represents our people? 
That's exactly what they're doing. They're walking off the mountain. And, and it's, it's possible that some of these guys have never seen the temple before. And so they're awestruck by these massive buildings, that, the, the likes of which they have never seen, that, that represent their people and their religion. And as they're walking off the Temple of Mount, they're like, wow. Jesus, look at all this. Look at all this. This is us. Jesus, being Jesus, reigns all over their parade. You see that? Yeah, okay. You see these buildings? You see all these stones, all these mighty stones, these, these, these monstrous buildings that represent our religion, our faith, and our people? I'm going to tell you the truth that not one stone will be left one on top of the other when I get done with them. Every one will be thrown We, I can't think of a time where, where there hasn't been some kind of conflict or a rumor that a war was going to come up between Russia and America or America and China or this country. Always, all the time. But somehow, in our time, whatever that time might be, we look at it and we say, this must be the end. Jesus says, hey, look, don't be deceived by all that. Such things must happen. We, we, could, we, could, we could put it a different way. These things happen. This is life. This is the reality of living in our broken world. We, we might paraphrase a popular, a popular colloquialism. Poo propagates, right? Bad things happen in the world. That is just a reality of living in our broken world. And Jesus says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. These are just side effects of living in the world. Jesus is specifically, again, warning his followers against getting caught up in signs that are, in fact, not signs. Allow me to say that again. Jesus is warning his followers against getting caught up in signs that are not signs. It's much again like the illustration I gave at the beginning. The sky is not falling. This is just realities of the seasons in which we live. They are, in fact, signs of the times, signs of our time. The reality of our life in our world right now. This is what the world looks like. This is the field on which we have to play. This is the situation in which we have to serve and struggle. This is life in the real world. Jesus warns specifically not to let the signs of the times break our faith or cool our love. Don't let the signs of the times break your faith or cool your love. You know, struggle and suffering, they are a part of life, aren't they? Jesus says so. It's a promise that Jesus gives that I like to go back to early and often just to remind us. Jesus tells his disciples specifically, in this world, you will have trouble. We think coming to Christ is going to solve all of our problems. But that's not the case. 
Jesus doesn't promise that. Jesus doesn't promise us that that all of our wildest dreams will come true. Jesus doesn't promise us that we will suddenly become prosperous. Jesus doesn't promise us that all of our relationships will be fixed and restored immediately. Jesus promises us that we're going to sit in the struggle and that we're going to have to fight our way through this. That's why we have to have faith. Struggles and suffering are part of faithful living. Jesus said so. And Jesus moves from what was happening in their world at that time to what they should expect to experience closer to home. Now, mind you, they don't know that he's leaving. Jesus is absolutely talking about the second coming. They are talking about what is immediately to come. And Jesus warns them in verse 1, you will be betrayed, you will be persecuted, you will be killed, and you will be hated because of me. Now that does not sound like winning a war, does it? That doesn't sound like we're coming up on top, that we're sitting on the right and left, and that we are able to to sit in power over the wicked world around us. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're going to be on the struggle bus, and and you're going to do it, but I'm going to go with you through it. Now, we could ask ourselves, well, is Jesus speaking of what would happen to to the Christian sect that did not yet exist? Or was he speaking of, of the Jews of the day? We really could say that the way it ultimately plays out, he was talking about both, wasn't he? The promise of being misunderstood. The promise of being maligned and mistreated. Well, that had been a reality for the Jews going way back all the way back to Abram. The same would eventually become true of of followers of the way, the new sect that would develop after Jesus ascended into heaven. The truth is that the belief in only one legitimate and true God and the declaration that all are sinners in need of repentance has never been a popular message. Again, the promise of trouble for his followers was a regular feature of Jesus' teaching. We need to understand this, that the good news of the gospel has a way of bringing about some less than desirable side effects for those who preach it. There will be seasons where we will struggle because we follow Jesus. And we need to learn to stand strong through the struggle. Trials have a way of making or breaking our faith, don't they? That's what I see. Trials, trials will either cause us to push away from Jesus or they will push us towards Jesus. They will either reveal to us our need for Christ's power and presence in our lives or they will cause us to believe that Christ is absent in our lives. Jesus is warning against that. Hey, you're going to be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. He says, hey, look, many of you, your faith is going to be broken because of the reality of living in this sinful and broken world. You're going to see the signs, you're going to experience the struggle, and you're going to say, this is not for me. Don't do that. Stand strong. James 1, 2 through 5, James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, we can see our struggles as a, a reality of Christ's absence in our world, or you can, we can see them as the perfect opportunity to prove himself faithful. And the way that we approach it will impact what we experience in and through it. We also have to worry about the, the cooling of our love. Jesus worries, don't let the sad state of affairs in our world extinguish our love for God or for others. Now, Jesus could be warning about one or, or either of those things. He could be warning against seeing wickedness in the world, again, as, absence, as evidence of his absence. If we look at verse 12, Jesus says this. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is talking about the increase again of wickedness. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. But it is just as often true that absence makes the heart go wander. The increase in the wickedness in our world is not evidence of God's absence. Brothers and sisters, hear me again. The increase in wickedness that we see in our world is not evidence of God's absence. It is evidence of a world that is deeply in need of his power and presence. It's evidence of a world that is in need of Christ's people to stand firm and stand strong and love hard in the midst of the struggles of this life. So Jesus could be warning against seeing the wickedness in the world and saying, there is no God, he is not here. Second thing Jesus could be warning about is our tendency to write off those who we see as wicked. To see those who are doing wrong. And, and let's be real. There, there is objectively evil in our world, correct? Sometimes what we do is we, we tend to do one of two things. We either tend to excuse it and say, well, it's not really that big of a deal. You know, judge not lest you be judged. That's for God to do. No, we are, we are to call, hear me, brothers and sisters, we are to call evil, evil. We are to call wicked, wicked. But we are also to love those that are walking in wickedness. Just as the father in the story of the prodigal son loved his son, even as he had wandered far away, we are to love those that have wandered far from God in the world. But our tendency is to say they are wicked and to say, you know what, they, they need to get what they deserve. We, we want the end to come because we want God to rain fire from heaven and to punish the evildoers. We want God to punish those that we believe that have oppressed us. We want God to punish those that we believe have, have wronged us or have, have maligned or mistreated us. But what are the great commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing in Jesus' qualifications of those two commands that says that we get to qualify whether or not we love people based on the quality of their lives and actions. You're just to love your neighbor. That's it. You have no choice. The only option is to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. 
You don't get to evaluate how wicked they are and how terrible you think they are and how deserving you think. That is not for you to decide. Your only decision is, am I going to obey Jesus and love them or am I not? We are to offer forgiveness and mercy in the same manner and in the, to the same measure that we hope to receive it from our Heavenly Father. The issue of wickedness in our world is a symptom of the sickness of sin that has been passed from generation to generation to generation. And the hope of the world is the love and the light of Christ. And they can't receive that if we don't share and shine it. If we don't believe that Christ is offering, if they are, that they are worthy to receive it, then we will not offer it. And brothers and sisters, if we see anyone in the world and we think that they are somehow unworthy of God's love, we have missed the truth of the gospel. We have replaced Jesus on the throne with something or someone else, and we need to check ourselves. Verse 14, Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See, here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. It doesn't really matter what signs we think we see. Don't be deceived. There's going to be signs. They're just signs of the life that we've got to live in a broken and fallen world. You know what we're supposed to do? Our mandate remains the same. Whatever signs we think we see, whatever season we happen to be living in, our mandate remains the same. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's what we need to be worried about. And we need to remember there is but one Savior though. Except no substitutes. Faith-shaking devastation is not a new thing in our world. When Jesus says in verse 15, let the reader understand, he's not talking about the reader of the Gospels. He's just referenced Daniel. He's referring back to the prophecies in Daniel. If you look, and you can check this out later, in Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11, you see four times in the book of Daniel that he mentions the abomination of desolation or the rebellion that causes desolation. Daniel talks about this destruction that's about to happen. Now, Daniel lived around 600 to 500 B.C., his prophecies undoubtedly refer to the destruction of the second temple in 167 or 168 BC by Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Roman army. At that time, the Romans came in, they destroyed, they, they first set up a temple, an altar in the middle of the temple over the, the, the temple that the, the Jews had. They sacrificed pigs on it and they, up, they, they erected a, a statue of Zeus in the temple. They defiled the temple, making it, rendering it unuseful for the Jewish people. Beyond that, not only did they do that, they added injury to insult and they made Judaism a capital offense. But here's the truth. This abomination that causes desolation was not the first rodeo that they'd experienced. As a matter of fact, Daniel himself had, had experienced such an abomination when he was but a boy. 
In 586 BC, the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, utterly destroyed Solomon's temple, robbed it of all of its artifacts, and rendered Judaism dead for a season. Jesus actually, though, is not pointing back to either of those. Jesus is pointing forward to another abomination which would take place in 70 A.D. A little history lesson for you all today. In 70 A.D., Vespian and the Romans destroyed the temple and all of Jerusalem. And Jesus is warning that while his followers wait for his return, they're going to experience, quote, great distress. And it's just distress that comes from living in this world without his physical presence. The truth is that the world is constantly in need of saving. There is no shortage of abominable acts that happen in the name of all sorts of wickedness. There is no end to the desolation that we as humans continue to propagate. And Jesus warns it's going to come. But while the destruction of the temple was truly horrible, the greater destruction that Christ is warning against is what comes when we despair and divert our attention to other sources of salvation. Did you know that the most famous pictures of Jesus are actually based upon an illegitimate son of a pope who was a bloodthirsty warlord? Look it up. It's, it's historically accurate. The pictures that we see and revere of Jesus looking pensively off into the middle distance are actually of a warlord. I think that that is so apropos. You do realize that none of the pictures that we have of Jesus are actually Jesus. Then no one knows what he looks like. I just think it's incredibly apropos that the person that we look at, and we often, when we think of Jesus, the image that comes to our mind is actually a person who represented the evil and wickedness and the struggle for power that pollutes our world. It is the exact opposite of who Jesus was. And we'd say, well, we would never uphold someone like, but do we not? Do we not make the same mistake of the first century Jews and look for people with power who we think and, and try to grasp power and hold on to power so that we can eradicate evil in our world? Do we not try to legislate morality? How's that working for us, by the way? Why are we so quick to, to label those we believe to be on our side as saviors and those who are in opposition as antichrists? We might not call them messiahs, but we sure do revere them and promote them as such, as if they hold the key to our hope in their hands. Christ warns, don't do that. There are going to be more than a few savior substitutes, but none of them are sufficient. Don't get distracted. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your attention, as Christ will say at the end in verse 35. Heaven and earth, all this mess that you see around you, it's going to pass away. But you know what doesn't? My word will stand forever. You look at all of these human saviors out there. They are going to struggle. They are going to fall short. But I will never fail you. You want a sign? Here's your sign. Jesus is, Jesus is utterly unconcerned with the temple. 
You know what temple of Christ is concerned with? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it tells us that your bodies are the temple of God. The temple in which God most desires to dwell. The temple that that God is most concerned about being destroyed is the temple of your heart and your mind. And that's what Christ is trying to defend here. See, the the disciples are all worried about the systems and structures. The people of the day would have been concerned about the, the actual facilities in the building. And Jesus is like, you got it all wrong. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about how you live and and how you allow God to live in and through you. You see all these signs? They're, They're just signs of the times that the world is a broken and terrible place. But here's what we need to not miss in this. Christ assures his disciples and he ensures us, Christ is coming back. I don't want to lose that in all of this. Christ is coming back. He is coming back to collect his followers. And he tells them that the sign of the son of man will appear in the heaven and the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the, of the earth. There will be, and Christ is telling them this, look, there will be no confusing when I come. He gives two signs as as an illustration, right? When lightning strikes in our field of vision, there's no missing that, is there? Like it's a clear sign. There is light from heaven. There's noise. You can see it. You can hear it. There's no mistaking. Lightning just struck. Same thing's true. When, when When we see vultures circling in the air, we know what? That there is a dead body below. There is no, there's no mistaking that. Some signs are just that obvious. And Jesus says, look, y'all are looking for signs. Don't worry about it. When I come, you're going to know. I promise you won't miss it. The question that we really need to be asking is not, is this the end? But when the end comes, will we be ready? And will we be working until that time? Here's the truth. No one knows the time. No one has the details. But Christ is coming back. Believe that. He's promised to come and collect his people and restore creation at just the right time in his own way. We don't know how long we have to wait. But a delayed promise is not a promise broken. Jesus is good for his word. He will do what he has said. There are a lot of voices proclaiming, the end is near. If we look at the negativity in the news and the struggles in our world, we might be convinced that the signs of the time indeed indicate that this is the end. But Jesus told his followers and Jesus tells us that the signs we're seeing are not signs of the end of the time, but signs of the season of distress that comes from Christ not being present on this earth. The end is imminent. What imminent means is not that it's going to come right now. It means at any moment, the end could come. You understand that the disciples believed that Jesus would return before the end of their lives. Christ could come at any time. But we don't know when. Honestly, I'm not that concerned when the end will or won't come. 
Jesus himself said that no one knows in the very next verse, and that's what we're going to look at. In verse 36, Jesus says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Saw a post yesterday by one of our members, and it was like Andy Griffith talking to Opie, and, and he's like, hey, is this the end? And, and Andy says to Opie, hey, son, we don't know. We're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. See, brothers and sisters, we get caught up looking at these signs, trying to decipher the truth of it so that we can anticipate the exact moment. But that is a fool's errand. That is not something that Christ ever told us to do. Our only awareness of the reality of the evil of the world, we are to be aware of that, but not so that we can anticipate this is when Christ is going to come. Just as a reminder that we need Christ to come. And in the meantime, we have an important job to do. It's not a motivator to make us fear the end. But to remind us that until the end comes, we have life to live and we have a job to do. Questions we must ask ourselves. Are we making the most of every opportunity to share the gospel and bring people to faith? Are we corporately and individually seeking Christ while he might be found? Are we keeping our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and following where he leads and living as he has shown? I'm not debating. The days are dark. There is no shortage of the proliferation of evil in our world. Wickedness seems to never stop. No matter what season we live in, that seems to be true. But that shouldn't make us afraid of what is coming in the future. That shouldn't make us sit back and rest knowing that Christ is going to judge and destroy the world. Instead, what that should do is serve as motivation. Something that should mobilize us, should stir passion and love and faith in our heart. For Christ has situated us for such a time as this. We are the beacons of hope sent to shine in this season of distress. And while we wait for our Lord to return, our job is not to sit looking at the sky, wringing our hands, proclaiming, the end is here, the sky is falling. Rather, our job is to proclaim loudly and often, the Savior has come. And he so loves you that he gave his life as a sacrifice for you. May we not get caught up in signs of what may come, but may we remember what Christ has done and seek to save that with a lost and dying world that's struggling just the same as you and I. Come back next year, next week, and we're going to look at where this goes as Christ continues on in verse 36 and following. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the promise of your hope, of your gospel that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that whatever we face in this world, your salvation stands secure. God, speak to us, walk with us, give us hope, and give us courage that we might share your truth in Jesus' name. Amen.